When Hurricane Ian came ashore yesterday afternoon, we knew it was one of the strongest storms to ever hit Florida, ever to hit the United States, period. And after a terrifying night in southwest Florida, daylight today brought harrowing evidence of the destruction a storm like that brings. This is Fort Myers Beach, one of the barrier islands that Ian slammed into as a nearly Category 5 storm. Before the hurricane, it was a popular beach destination full of resorts and restaurants. As you can see, much of it has been leveled. One local resident told his local paper, quote, Fort Myers Beach is gone. This is the causeway leading to Sanibel Island, just to the west of Fort Myers Beach. It's the only road to that island of 6,000 people. And as you can see here, it is impassable. All the bridges to Pine Island, just north of there, have also failed. This evening, NBC Nightly News anchor Lester Holt spoke with the mayor of Sanibel about her concern for the people who didn't evacuate before the storm and may be trapped there. We have had significant numbers of people contact us with people that they knew that were on the island. So we have been logging those meticulously and getting those out to our first responders. We've had about 200 households that didn't evacuate on the island that we know of. And the search and rescue teams are on the island going door to those areas that they can get to right now trying to help those individuals and and, uh, make sure that they're safe. And there have been some people that have come off the island. As you heard the mayor of Sanibel describing there, a huge issue today is that the infrastructure damage is making it difficult for first responders to reach many areas where people may be stranded or worse. At least 10 people are confirmed dead from the storm, but that number is expected to rise, perhaps significantly. Visiting FEMA headquarters today, President Biden warned that Ian could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida history, saying that early reports suggested substantial loss of life. The FAA this evening declared a temporary restricted airspace over Fort Myers to clear the air for search operations. Florida's governor says there have been over 700 confirmed rescues statewide so far. And to be clear, this storm is not over. Nearly two and a half million customers are still without power. Even as residents in southwest Florida begin to survey the damage and search the wreckage for survivors in central Florida and on the northeast coast, the disaster is still unfolding. Orlando saw historic flooding today after a drenching 14 inches of rain, and the rain and wind continued into tonight as residents wait for the floodwaters to recede. As Ian moved out into the Atlantic this afternoon, there was a storm surge on the east coast just as there was on the west coast. Here you see the city of St. Augustine, where the the Mustanzas River overtopped its banks, where it flows into the Atlantic. Officials say that historic levels of river flooding could affect Florida communities inland, not just on the coast. It could affect them for weeks. And now that Ian has moved out into the Atlantic, it is strengthened from a tropical storm back into a Category 1 hurricane. And states north of Florida are bracing for its impact as it turns back west toward the South Carolina coast. Right now... It is places like Lee County on Florida's southwest coast, that's Fort Myers, Sanibel, Cape Coral, where the situation is most dire. Even as rescuers search for those who need help, Lee County's public hospital system announced this afternoon that they are evacuating all their patients, at least 800 people, out of that county because of a lack of power and running water. The storm may have moved on from southwest Florida, but the grappling with what it left behind is just beginning. Joining us now from Fort Myers, Florida, is CNBC correspondent Perry Rossum. Perry, we spoke last night just after Fort Myers was devastated. Can you tell us about the last 24 hours and what it has been like? 
So today we went down to Fort Myers where there was flooding. You have entire neighborhoods that are separated by water. Today we heard stories of surviving and stories of saving. On the surviving side, we met an 80-year-old woman who was found by a couple 20-somethings. She was taking her cell phone trapped in her house and was just tapping it against a window. She was trapped inside of her house and by some luck, these 20-somethings heard her dove into the water and got her out. We met a woman named Mandy. She was wearing a life jacket inside of her house with her husband. They were standing on top of a pool table that flipped over. They were standing there for hours in their life jacket. Mindy tells us the water was up to her neck. On the saving side of it, we met this man named Kevin Ott, O-T-T. He told us he saved 16 people. He was with his three kids, his two sons, and his daughter. Scary. But we saved a lot of people that day, so it was good. People that would have never made it. Old people, it was sad. And we had to leave a lot of people too. We spoke to him outside of the house where he saved the family of his ex-girlfriend. He says there were about three or four of them that were trapped inside of the house in 10 feet of water. They were inside of a canoe, Alex. Perry, people standing in life jackets on top of pool tables inside their house, it would seem like their only lifeline here are their cell phones. How is tele, how are telecommunications? Are people able to get through to emergency services via phone? Their only lifeline is their deadline. There is no form of cell service at all, period. Like we were down there today speaking with these people. They were asking us, hey, what's going on? We have no idea. The only thing that they understand that's happening is what's within their four walls and under their roof if they still have one they are essentially trapped. Luckily, right now, the water is going down. When we were down there earlier today, the only way we could get around was just hitching rides with people that have those trucks with the higher suspension. We saw a couple of those uh, swamp buggies out there as well. There is no communication. I mean, we have to drive maybe 20, 30 minutes outside of where we were just to get cell service to send out tweets, let people know where we were, checking in with them to make sure that we're okay and all that stuff. Cell service just doesn't exist. And the one we spoke with, many, the one with the life jacket on the pool table, she told us, like, what is FEMA going to do? How is FEMA going to help them right now? Because she told us her message from FEMA or what she's been hearing from FEMA is go online to fill out the form, like go online to find out more information. But online just doesn't exist for them, Alex. Um, you know, we're, we're showing some images here, Perry, of this, the utter devastation. There is no home to go. If this is wreckage, this is just piles of debris. What kind of shelter is there for people who are hoping to return home and then realize there is no home to return to? So the shelters that we're hearing about, I believe it was 12 or it was 14 yesterday, they added two more. Um, but people have been either going toward Miami or they've been going up to Gainesville to try and find shelter. But the biggest issue is communication. Like the, the people have to know that shelters are there. And the thing that we're seeing is the destruction is so widespread that you have first responders that are just spread out. So it's difficult to get to every single person. I mean, that's not a fault on the first responders. They're trying to do their job taking care of life over property right now. But just to show you what we're talking about, we were across the street from Mindy. Her, her neighbor's house was just on fire. 
it was just burning to the ground. There was nobody there. We saw some firefighters driving by, but they were trying to find a woman that was trapped in an attic. So you have firefighters that are passing a fire. Luckily, nobody was inside at the time. They're letting this building burn because they're still looking for people. So there are so many different variables at play with timing, communication, uh, making sure people have, you know, food, water, anything like that is, it, it's, it's, these people feel helpless. You know, there's no real communication. They're turning to us as reporters saying, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? How bad is it? And we're just hearing from them about the water that they were standing in that was feet high. I mean, I, I, I'd ask you as a reporter who's been in living through this chapter that is going to be, to most people, the most devastating chapter of their life. What is the emotional tenor uh, of the people that you've spoken to? Obviously, this is an incredibly fraught, devastating, sad, tragic moment. Do you see resilience or are people still, I mean, just tell me how it has been to talk to the people whose lives have been so deeply affected by Hurricane Ian. One, they're tired, first off. They really haven't slept. Um, they're exhausted emotionally, physically. I mean, the woman we talked with, Mindy, she said, hey, we'll talk to you, but can you please sit down? My feet are tired from standing like, during the storm. Like, of course, no problem at all. Uh, they're just tired. Kevin Ott, the man we talked with, the one with the boat who was saving the 16 people with his three kids, he hadn't slept. He was exhausted. We just talked to him on the phone to see how he was doing. He just wants to sleep tonight. I mean, these people are sleeping in areas with no cell service, and then they can't even charge their phones anyway. There's no power. They, they, they are just emotionally, physically drained. And uh, it, who knows when they're going to have a chance to refill. CNBC's Perry Russell in Fort Myers. Perry, thank you for the great reporting. Stay safe. Thank you. Joining us now is Fort Myers City Manager Marty Lawing. Mr. Lawing, thank you for joining us. I know this is a terrible time for your community. Fort Myers saw some of the worst of the storm yesterday. Can you tell us how recovery efforts are being coordinated today? Okay, well, we got first, we got started late last night, about 11 o'clock, a preliminary. Uh, assessment team went out into the field to kind of get an idea of what we would could see this morning. And then uh, bright and early this morning, they got out and started their assessment work to assess not only uh, damage of city-owned uh, facilities, but uh, private properties as well to come up with estimates uh, to be used for various purposes for FEMA, et cetera. So uh, we've got a very storm-savvy uh, team uh, the city of Fort Myers, some experienced department directors and key staff, and uh, uh, they know what to do and, and how to do it. So uh, we're being proactive going forward, and uh, we have an action plan, and, and uh, we're going to uh, carry it out. I think a lot of people will be happy to hear that you have an action plan and that this is, of course, a group of people who are storm savvy. But, you know, your mayor today says this was the worst storm he's seen since the, in the area since he entered public service, I believe, in the mid-70s. What has it been like for you? I mean, how does this moment stack up against other storms that have been in Florida that have hit your area? You know, I've been in Fort Myers for a little over a year as city manager, but I have worked quite a bit of my career in coastal regions of North Carolina and South Carolina. And I would have to say this is right up there with some of the strongest storms that that I've had to deal with. And uh, what I've seen over the years is every storm is different. Some will have stronger winds, some will have uh, a lot more rain and water, and some will have a uh, higher storm surge. So uh, this this storm had all three, and uh, it was it was a pretty strong storm and had uh, a significant impact. And um, 
this will be, uh, as our EOC partners with Lee County say, this will be a marathon, not a sprint uh, to get uh, cleaned up. We've seen some reports of hospital patients being evacuated to other area hospitals. What kind of resources does Fort Myers have right now? And what, what kind of resources do they need more of? We're, we're very lucky in that uh, uh, the state of Florida has a, a very uh, strong emergency management uh, program. Uh, Lee County has a very robust uh, emergency management program as well. And the city, as I said, we have a, a lot of experienced department directors. So all indications are at this point that the resources from the state and the federal government will be coming and coming quickly. Uh, we've established a request list of um, uh, capital items, uh, human resources that we need, that we think we need to uh, get things back to normal. And uh, we're, 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 we have a positive outlook at this point. It's wonderful to hear that you have a positive outlook as, you know, as we're, we're talking to you, we're playing images of the destruction on the ground there. And it is staggering. I, I don't think it's lost on anybody that you are in a dark room um, that is not lit. I would assume you don't have electricity. And I guess my question is, what is your guidance to people in Fort Myers who may want to use gas or electric powered appliances? Should they be using them given uh, the flooding that is currently in place? Well, if you step outside uh, in most communities, you'll hear generators running. So we're, we're, we're hopeful that people have, have those uh, connected safely and in compliance with codes and, and uh, hopefully it'll make them a little more comfortable as we move forward. But, uh, but uh, yes, it's a, it's a challenging time and we are uh, without power. Uh, of course, our city facilities have generator power. I came home for a few hours, so I'm at my home and I'm without power, without water. Uh, so I'd made the, made it the best I could here. And, um, but it's like I said, it's not going to be a quick uh, uh, recovery. Uh, as at the end of yesterday, there were some 280,000 uh, customers that were without power, and a significant number of the city uh, water customers will be without water uh, for the next couple of days. So uh, it would be a challenging time, but uh, uh, the resources from our partners at the state and county, uh, I think we'll get through it just fine. All right. That is a word of encouragement from Fort Myers City Manager Marty Long. Thank you so much for your time tonight and good luck with everything. Thank you. We will have much more on this devastation in Florida ahead this hour. We'll talk live with a Coast Guard commander about the rescues his team is carrying out tonight. But up next, the judge in the Trump investigation delivers another win for the former president. And Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, talks with the January 6th committee. What she had to say is coming up next. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. 
When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. What the FBI is probably doing is planning evidence, which is what they did during the Russia hoax. We also have a hunch they doctored evidence to get the warrant. For example, do I know that the boxes of material they took from Mar-a-Lago, that they won't put things in those boxes to entrap him? How do we know? Their lawyers weren't allowed to see the boxes go. And his lawyers said they brought in backpacks. What what was in those backpacks? Did they bring those in to fill them up or did they have something in there? The problem that you have is they go into rooms, they won't let anybody near them. They wouldn't even let them in the same building. Did they drop anything into those piles or did they do it later? There's no chain of custody here with them. Ever since former President Trump's personal residence at Mar-a-Lago was searched by the FBI, Trump, Republican lawmakers and conservative media have been pushing the idea that the FBI might have planted incriminating evidence while they were there. Trump isn't really guilty. He's being framed. It's a witch hunt, etc. Trump's lawyers even suggested as much in their legal filings. But then last week, Raymond Deary, the special master who had been appointed to oversee the tug of war between Trump's lawyers and the Department of Justice over the 11,000 documents seized last month, that special master essentially told Trump's team to put up or shut up, either present Judge Deary with evidence that the FBI planted something or stop saying they did. That order could have poured a ton of cold water on Trump's conspiracy theories that the FBI planted evidence at his beach club, that this whole thing was a deep state fake, which would have been politically, optically, legally not great for Trump, which is why Trump's legal team brought the special master's order back to the judge in charge of the case, Eileen Cannon. And tonight, that judge, that Trump appointed judge said, actually, Trump's team does not need to comply with Judge Deary's order to essentially put up or shut up. Meaning Trump and conservative media can continue to make the case that this entire Mar-a-Lago episode is some sort of deep state fake. And while she was at it, Judge Cannon extended the deadline for the special master's review from the end of November to the week before Christmas. Deny, 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 delay, delay, delay. So what does this all mean for accountability? Joining us now is David Rode, executive editor of TheNewYorker.com. David, thank you so much for being here. We have spoken over these past few weeks about the Trumpification of the judiciary. And for a moment, after the 11th Circuit Court ruling and Judge Deary, the special master, it seemed like the judiciary was back on track. But Eileen Cannon is a specific actor in all of this. What do you make of the, the decision today on her part? It's it's really disappointing. I mean, again, the positive thing, Judge Deary, appointed by uh, President Reagan, a Republican appointee, was sort of pushing a fact-finding effort here. It was essentially, here's the inventory of documents that, you know, the FBI and the Justice Department created. Tell me which one of these documents might have been planted. Like, which ones, you know, are you suspicious about? That's what he was requiring from Trump's lawyers next Friday, just a week from now, roughly speaking. And Judge Cannon just threw all that out, just said, you don't have to answer that question. And it's frustrating because this is a legal procedure. It should be a fact-finding exercise. Yeah. And they don't have to present facts. There is some talk that, look, the ultimate 
focus of this, the 100 or so classified documents, that investigation, the analysis of all that proceeds forward without the involvement of Eileen Cannon. And yet this politically feels like a gift to Trump. The mere fact that he does not have to substantiate his claims that the FBI planted things at Mar-a-Lago, whether that was among the 11,000 documents or elsewhere, seems like something he needs at this stage of the game because his I declassified them all argument has basically evaporated. There's this strange, I don't know, strange or whatever, unusual deference to Donald Trump and all of her rulings, whatever, not everything that her, you know, lawyers have argued she agrees with. So they said here, we don't want to make, we don't want to say which documents might be fake because that might become an issue later in the case. And then the second thing she did was that they said they need more time yeah. to review the documents. And this whole tactic was delay, 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 as you said, and she extended the deadline. So it's again, this kind of, uh, I don't know, taking, there's a suspicion of everything the DOJ or the FBI suggests in this case for Judge Cannon and a kind of credibility that seems to come with everything that Trump and his lawyers present. And given the track record of Donald Trump and the tens of thousands of lies, you know, as president, that's not, you know, I think appropriate. That's a strange conclusion for her to make, right? Mistrust the government, but trust Donald Trump. And the reasons Trump's team has been giving for these necessary delays and all this are sound pretty cooked up. I mean, it's like, we can't find the right vendor. We can't get the, you know, we can't process all this paper in time. You can hire more lawyers. We know you had $3 million to pay Chris Kais. You certainly should have some funds to cover the scanning of these documents. I, I just wonder if you think the delay itself is meaningful. December 16th is a few weeks after November 30th. Originally, Judge Deary wanted this wrapped up at the end of October. It's inching towards the end of the year. Do you think it's meaningful from an optical perspective, an optics perspective, that this is all going to come to a head right before everybody goes on Christmas vacation? It's a better timeline for Donald Trump. Uh, you know, Judge Deary was talking about the end of October. There could have been a, you know, a ruling or some early decision that might have, you know, frankly helped or had an impact on the, on the midterms election. I don't think it's critical, but yes, you know, it's now right before Christmas. It's giving Trump more time. And again, most importantly, and she could block him from, you know, ever forcing Trump to, again, put up or shut up. Yeah. Which of these documents do you claim were planted? And if he doesn't have to say that, he can go on for months and months and forever, months. actually. Well, and, and he will. And, you know, that's, I guess, his ability as a, as a politician. But this is a judge. These are lawyers. And, and we go to court. You have a trial. Someone is innocent or guilty. This is a fact or this is not a fact. And that's what we need in this kind of crazy era where things are so heated is more just just basic facts. Well, and we want confidence in our judicial system. Right. I, mu I must add and ask you about the news of today elsewhere, another court, the Supreme Court. Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, went and voluntarily testified before the January 6th committee. And a lot of people have said, given Ginny Thomas's involvement in the events leading up to January 6th, her election denialism, her campaign with states and with other actors inside Trump world, her relationships with Mark Meadows and John Eastman, that perhaps Justice Thomas should recuse himself. Her opening statement today, speaking to the committee, I can guarantee that my husband has never spoken with me about pending cases at the court. It's an ironclad rule in our home. Additionally, Justice Thomas is uninterested in politics. I mean, just I'll just you can't see my face here, but you can imagine. And I generally do not discuss with him my day to day work in politics, the topics I'm working on, who I'm calling, emailing, texting or meeting. Does that satisfy your questions? 
No, and it's it's just bad for the Supreme Court. It's bad for the American people. Maybe they never discuss this in private, but it's just obvious to any American that to have the wife of a Supreme Court justice saying the 2020 election was stolen, which is the, which she one continues of the most, to say. She continues today. to say she said it today, and and it. it Cast, you know, it, it cast doubt on the court itself. So there should be much stricter rules that he should have to recuse himself or, or a liberal justice have to recuse themselves if it's a case that seems to involve, you know, the work of one of their spouses. But, you know, the court, I think that's why their, their, you know, their confidence levels, the public confidence levels in the court has dropped so low. Obviously, many people are upset with the Roe decision, but this doesn't help the credibility of the courts. And we need judges to be neutral arbiters. And just lastly, on her statement about the election, you know, dozens, 80 judges rejected Trump's claim that the election was stolen. 30, I think, or 40 of them were Republicans. There were judges appointed by Donald Trump who said the election wasn't stolen. She is wrong. She is wrong factually. And so it's crazy. This and her husband was the only dissent in the Supreme Court case in January, rejecting Trump's bid to withhold White House documents from the January 6th committee. Not saying, just saying. David Rode, executive editor of TheNewYorker.com. Thanks as always, David. Thank you. We have much more ahead here tonight. Scenes like this are unfolding across Southwest Florida. And in just a moment, we're going to talk live with the Coast Guard commander who is in charge of many of them. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Just in tonight, NBC News is confirming an additional two storm-related deaths reported in Lee County, bringing the total to 12 as search and rescue operations are underway in southwest Florida, now 30 hours since Hurricane Ian made landfall there as a powerful and destructive Category 4 storm. Aerial footage from the U.S. Coast Guard you see on your screen here gives you an idea of just how much devastation the storm has caused in communities across the region. President Biden, speaking from FEMA headquarters in Washington, D.C. this afternoon, said Hurricane Ian may have been responsible for, quote, a substantial loss of life and that it could be, quote, the deadliest hurricane in Florida history. And it is against this ominous backdrop that organizations and local, state and federal agencies have set out conducting search and rescue operations throughout the state. In Collier County, water rescuers from the Naples Fire Department waded through waist-deep water to rescue a woman from her car, which became submerged by floodwaters. Ian hit central Florida as a tropical storm, but even in Orlando, flooding prompted scenes like these, where rescuers used boats to reach people desperate to get to safety. This was in nearby Kissimmee just a few hours ago. The roads have effectively become rivers 
and boat rescues are ongoing. This evening, Governor Ron DeSantis said that more than 700 people had been rescued so far statewide after rescue operations began early this morning. Florida's Division of Emergency Management said the bulk of those rescues, at least 500, were carried out in Charlotte and Lee counties. In hard-hit Lee County, where the barrier island of Sanibel has been cut off from the rest of the mainland, the Coast Guard has been out surveying the area in the hopes of reaching residents who chose to stay behind as the storm approached. The U.S. Coast Guard had 27 aircraft, mostly helicopters, ready in the region before Ian made landfall. And they have been carrying out search and rescue operations ever since. Joining us is Rear Admiral Brendan McPherson, commander of the 7th Coast Guard District. He is responsible for all Coast Guard operations in the southeast United States. Admiral McPherson, thank you so much for taking the time out of your important schedule for joining us this evening. Let me just get right to it and ask you, what are you seeing down there and what are you hearing from the folks on the ground? Yeah, good evening, uh, Alex. It's good to be with you tonight. So, uh, just after the storm came uh, on land yesterday, uh, shortly after that, before the sun even rose, we had Coast Guard aircraft in the air conducting search and rescue missions. Uh, so since then, we were able to save 83 people. Uh, we continue to fly those missions uh, throughout the region. And I've talked to a number of the uh, rescuers, our rescue swimmers, the courageous men and women that, that put themselves in harm's way. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's devastating. It's devastating destruction throughout the region. The, the high winds, the historic surge, uh, and, and the heavy rainfall have really left the place uh, saturated. But I'm happy to say we were able to pull 83 people out safely. 83 people is 83 lives. Can you tell us more about the rescue process and, and the methods you use? I mean, how do you, how do you get in touch with the people who need help, or how do they get in touch with you? And how do you prioritize who to help first? Yeah, first of all, I'd say, I, you know, you think of this as a, a well-organized military operation, right? It's not just the Coast Guard. It's the Florida National Guard. It's the FEMA urban search and rescue teams. It's the local uh, fire departments. And uh, we all come together under a system we call the incident command system. It's a management system that is we all use the same language. We share communications. Uh, and first, we rely on those calls for help. 911 is the best way to reach emergency responders. Uh, so if anybody hears my voice or they see me talking here this evening, if you're in distress, you know somebody's in distress, use 911, don't use social media. Uh, but beyond that, we grid the area out just like you would on a battlefield, and we go methodically grid box to box, grid to grid, doing a, a thorough search. When you say you go grid to grid, box to box, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is primarily boats, given the amount of flooding and the, just the water, uh, the inundation of the water. But you also met, mentioned rescue swimmers. Can you explain a little bit more about those folks and what other methods are you're using to reach people? Yeah, we, we you know, we go after this, uh, like I said, like a military operation from the land, the sea and the air. If we can get in there by trucks and vehicles, we're going to do that. If we can't do that and the water's too high, we have shallow water rescue boats. Uh, and then we'll go door to door checking on people. And if you can't get there by boat or by vehicle, uh, we're going to use our aircraft. And that's what we do. We have rescue swimmers. These are specially trained, uh, highly equipped uh, people uh, that we lower it either by in a basket or on a line that go into harm's way into the water if they need to, to pull people out. And uh, they are the most elite people we have in the Coast Guard. I'm sure their services are greatly appreciated, critical life-saving efforts in this moment. Um, let me just ask in terms of 
how you look at this event compared to other ones where the Coast Guard has had to intervene. Does it feel historic to you? Have you ever seen anything like this? Yeah. So listen, every one of these storms is unique, right? Going back in my 30 years of experience, I've been, I've been involved in rescues and operations for Hurricane Hugo, Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane Katrina. Last week, I was in Puerto Rico in response to Hurricane Fiona. Uh, they're all devastating. You know, if you're impacted by this, it's devastating to you, regardless of, of the scope and scale. But I will say, in this case, this was, uh, you know, historic proportions. The scale and scope of this was almost unprecedented in the sense of you had the high wind, the heavy rain, and the historic surge. Rear Admiral Brendan McPherson, commander of the 7th Coast Guard District, thank you so, so very sincerely for making the time tonight, and thank you so much for your work this week. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Alex. The other thing I just want to add is, uh, while we're certainly focused on saving lives, Uh, We're also focused on getting our ports reopened. That's an important part of our mission for the Coast Guard. We're working very closely with our state partners to get those ports open as quickly as we can because we recognize the full-time recovery is going to rely on those ports as well. Indeed, indeed it will. And best of luck in in those efforts. Thank you. Coming up, while Russian President Vladimir Putin plans to celebrate a sham referendum to annex four Ukrainian territories tomorrow, The leader has two pestering problems to deal with, each one over 750 miles long and right in the middle of the Baltic Sea. That story is next. Stay with us. This is what the Baltic Sea, just off the coast of the Danish island of Bornholm, looked like yesterday. What you're looking at is a massive leak from a pipeline transporting natural gas gas from Russia to Europe. Earlier this week, multiple explosions caused four leaks in the Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2 pipelines, causing the release of millions of tons of methane into the sea. The two pipelines under the Baltic Sea are each over 750 miles in length. Both pipelines, which lie more than 300 feet below the surface, are not operational at the moment and were not operational at the time of the explosions. Russia suspended the flow of gas through the Nord Stream pipeline in August in response to Western sanctions, while operations at Nord Stream 2 were frozen by Germany days before Russia invaded Ukraine. And as to what happened exactly, that is a mystery. The European Union this week called it, quote, a deliberate act. European officials said that the pattern of the damage suggested a coordinated explosion. Today, Russia denied involvement and asserted the leaks were the result of state-sponsored terrorism. Meanwhile, NATO said that the explosions indicate, quote, the result of deliberate, reckless, and irresponsible acts of sabotage. So it sounds like everyone is in agreement that this was no accident, but rather an attack. But an act of sabotage? Who would do that? And why? Well, CNN reports today and note that this is not confirmed by NBC News, but CNN is reporting that European security officials observed Russian Navy ships in the area of the leaks earlier this week when the underwater explosions were reported. I mean, it is worth asking, would Russia, would Russia ever gin something up to assert its power? Well, Vladimir Putin is set to hold a rally of sorts tomorrow after a sham referendum was held to annex four Ukrainian territories a referendum vote where Russian soldiers showed up with guns to casually collect people's votes. Unsurprisingly, the results were a resounding yes for annexation, 
and 87% respectively in the four regions that are, according to the Kremlin, now part of Russia. Putin plans to officially announce the results at a Kremlin ceremony tomorrow, but it comes as nearly 200,000 Russians, 200,000 have fled the country to avoid Putin's partial mobilization, announced last week. In a rare moment of candor, Putin tonight in an address on state TV acknowledged mistakes had possibly been made with how men were being drafted. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia during the Obama administration. Ambassador, thank you for being here tonight. Um, Let me just first ask you the referendum vote. What do you think is the point of it? Is it on one hand to sort of justify potential escalation? in those areas? Or is it potentially to show the pro-war contingent back home in Russia that Putin can deliver and deliver by bringing new land into the Russian empire? Alex, I think it's both. Uh, It's first to show that there have been results from the war. Um, Second, they're going through this, you know, this sham stuff to say that this is just self-determination. You know, people have the right to determine where they want to live. So they have that argument for the international world. And that sounds stupid to us, uh, but it may not sound stupid to everyone around the world. So they're doing that first. But secondly, they also are escalating. This is a major turning point in the war tomorrow, because once these places, according to Putin, are part of Russia, then if they are attacked, Russia is now being attacked, not just Ukraine. And that, I think, is a major escalatory move in this war. Do you think he feels like he needs to make make escalatory moves when he sees the reports, if he does see them, of hundreds of thousands of Russians fleeing the country to avoid having to fight his war in Ukraine? Without question. And remember, he, he they're fleeing because he did something he also didn't want to do because he was losing this war. He ordered a partial mobilization. He wanted to get 300,000 soldiers. It looks like he's mobilized a lot of young men, uh, but he's mobilized them to leave, maybe more than 300,000 by the time this is over. He didn't want to do that. He promised the Russian people, this is not a war. It was just a special military operation inside Ukraine. He was losing after seven months, right? He did didn't overthrow the quote unquote Nazis. He didn't demilitarize Ukraine. He didn't take Kiev, right? He lost the Battle of Kiev. He lost the Battle of Kharkiv. So he was compelled because he was losing to do this. And now it's having these very dangerous results for him inside his own country. I mean, when we talk about the people who are being conscripted into this army, I want to call your attention to a statement from the U.S. State Department advising Americans to get out of Russia. In, 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 otherwise, they are at risk of getting drafted into Putin's army. Russia may refuse to acknowledge dual nationals, U.S. citizenship, deny their access to U.S. consular assistance, prevent their departure from Russia and conscript dual nationals for military service. U.S. citizens residing or traveling in Russia should depart Russia immediately. What what would cause the U.S. State Department to what level of concern would cause the U.S. State Department to issue something like this? And do you find it you know, feasible that Putin would try and draft U.S. nationals into his army? Well, I certainly hope he doesn't do that. I want to be clear about that. I've heard from uh, families inside Russia with American passports, but mixed families that can't get out. They're terrified right now. But uh, I think they have reason to be concerned because he's also drafting Ukrainians. 
That's what's going to happen in those territories we were just talking about. After tomorrow, he's going to start drafting people that live there. There are reports that he's drafting ethnic Tatars that live in Crimea uh, to go fight against the Ukrainians. That is a real sign of desperation. And so we shouldn't be surprised if it happens. Let me just ask you if you have a theory on the Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2 pipeline explosions. Do you have a theory on those explosions? Honestly, I don't. It, this is weird. I mean, it's clear now there, these were sabotage, terrorist attacks, whatever you want to call them. It's not clear who did them. But I do think it's a wake up call uh, for all of Europe that it's time to get off of Russian uh, fossil fuels. Uh, you know, I worked in the Obama administration and in, during the transition, I wrote the memo for how to deal with Russia back in the fall of 2008. Point three was reduce our energy dependence of our allies and friends on Russia. That creates leverage. Finally, Europe is doing it. I applaud them. And I think this is one more a tragic message why it is not in their security and I would say environmental and economic interests to be dependent on Russia for oil and gas. This whole chapter has been a series of wake up calls about how we should no longer be dependent on Russian oil and gas. Michael yeah. McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, it's always great to see you. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Up next, the question of who gets aid after a disaster like Hurricane Ian may depend very much on which part of the country they live in. Stay with us. In August of 2017, Hurricane Harvey devastated communities in Texas and Louisiana, leaving as many as 107 people dead. Less than one month later, another hurricane, Hurricane Maria, battered U.S. communities in Puerto Rico. The final death toll from Hurricane Maria was over 3,000. Just yesterday, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, part of the federal government, released a study comparing the responses to Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria. The commission found glaring disparities in the responses to those two hurricanes. For instance, quote, within the first nine days after landfall, Harvey survivors received over $100 million in FEMA dollars, while Maria survivors received slightly over $6 million in aid just 6% of what survivors on the mainland got. The commission's report cites a variety of factors that led to those disparate outcomes, including then-President Trump's hostile, biased, and critical declarations made against the American citizens residing in Puerto Rico. Now, under a different president, American lawmakers are facing a very similar situation to the one in 2017 after Hurricanes Fiona and Ian. Two hurricanes less than one month apart, one on the mainland and one in Puerto Rico. It has been almost two weeks since Hurricane Fiona made landfall, and still more than a fifth of Puerto Rico's residents are without power. And residents of Puerto Rico are already preparing to be forgotten as Hurricane Ian dominates the headlines. One community advocate in Puerto Rico told Politico, we're going to be put on the back burner, as always. It's Florida. It's attached to the United States. So far, the Biden administration appears determined not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Yesterday, the Department of Homeland Security issued a waiver to a 100-year-old shipping law that was keeping desperately needed fuel from reaching Puerto Rico's shores. And during a press briefing today, President Biden reiterated his commitment to helping the people of Puerto Rico. And while we're seeing the devastating images in Florida, I want to be clear. To the people of Puerto Rico, we're not gone away. I am committed to you and the recovery of the island. We'll stand by you for however long it takes to get it done. 
The president also said that he intends to visit the island of Puerto Rico as it recovers. We will not know the true toll of these two storms for some time, but there is no question that the victims of both of these storms need all the help they can get. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.